0: Simple Beep, Episode 12, Music on the Classic Mac. Hello, and welcome to Simple Beep, a podcast looking back at the history of Apple and the Mac community. I'm Ed Cormany.
1: And I'm Brian Satorius.
0: Today, we're going to talk about our love of music and how that was shaped by the technology that we used at the time, which was back in the 90s, the classic Mac. So there will be lots of 90s music and 90s technology in this episode. Before we dive into this week's topic, uh, just a little bit of feedback and follow-up from previous episodes. Uh, If you've been following along with us recently, we finished our arc of three episodes of Triumph of the Nerds. Now we're moving on to something else, so you don't have to do homework and watch episodes to enjoy this episode. But one thing that I mentioned in the last show was we were sort of extrapolating from where Triumph of the Nerds ended and talking about Steve Jobs grand visions for the way that you should be able to handle your data on a Mac or really on any system and that he had this vision of really being able to have all of your data in the cloud even though in 1997 it was the 1997 WWDC question and answer session which was something that was discontinued shortly thereafter there was no open Q&A with Steve Jobs up on a stage um, but in that presentation, he talked about basically the notion of having all of your data stored elsewhere and being able to log into any computer that you happened upon in a lab, a friend's computer, whatever, and just being able to have full access to all your data. And I got something wrong where I said that I thought that there was a recent feature in OS 10 where you could basically do this, where you would have guest uh, guest accounts enabled, and then you would be able to log in as a guest account with an Apple ID. That's not exactly how it is. But there is a relatively recent feature that does involve logins and Apple IDs. And the feature is that there's a new feature where you can reset an administrator password if you associate that local user account, you know, your Unix-based user account, With an Apple ID. So in case you forget your administrator password or something goes wrong and you need to reset that, you could use your Apple ID password and make that password reset. Of course, depending on how you have that set up, whether you have two-factor authentication on your Apple ID, that may actually be poking more security holes in things. But this uh, relates to our topic today, is that when I was talking about this last episode, I said, Apple has had this idea for a while. Obviously, this has been in Job's mind since before 1997, because he was putting it out there publicly as a, a goal in 1997. And prepping for this episode, I was thinking about history of music and history of the iPod. And there's a really great episode of Connected, the podcast on FM. In fact, their first episode, Connected, episode one, goes back to the introduction of the iPod and that keynote, and brings it all the way forward through many iPod models until uh, the present, which I guess was about a little bit less than a year ago they released that episode, and they talked about how the iPod is not the player that it was anymore. But one thing that they mentioned offhand in there was a rumored OS X Panther feature that never came to light, which was that it wasn't clear if this was for any hard disks or just iPods, where you could put your entire home folder, your user folder on an iPod, and then plug that into another Mac and log in as if it were a local user account, which just seems completely bananas. And that was basically what they said about it too. But the notion is that even though this feature never happened in Panther and nothing quite like it has happened since, that this idea of having your data anywhere or your portable data that any Mac can be your Mac temporarily has been around in Apple for a long, long time. So that was a feature of the iPod that never came into existence. But today we're going to talk about the things that actually sort of spurred the need for having an iPod, having music that you could take around with you wherever and whenever you want.
1: And before there was the iPod, before even there were uh, MP3s, customizable playlists of all the songs you wanted to hear we were all uh listening to music largely in the format of albums uh whether they were you know concept albums like a uh, sergeant pepper or uh, compilation albums like your now that's what i call music we were we were usually listening to the same single collection of music at any time whether it was a cassette uh, a record or a cd i got my first and only in my lifetime uh, portable CD player. I think in eighth grade, it was a Panasonic SL S three hundred and sixty. Gotta
0: love those model numbers. <laughs> I
1: know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the model numbers are completely nondescriptive, but every feature has a uh, like an English name, like like super bass and advanced skip protection. Which, by the way, was forty seconds of skip protection.
0: That was revolutionary at the time. I remember. I actually remember when you got that CD player and. I think we got out, like, somebody's watch that had a second hand, and one of us actually, like, put the headphones on and just started shaking it back and forth to see if 40 seconds was truth or a lie. <laughs> and sure <laughs> enough, like, right after 40 seconds, the song cut out.
1: Yeah, it was, It was like, a, a probably a top-of-the-line CD player for its time, and it served me very well, uh, even into the age where I was listening to digital music, whether, like, from files on my computer through desktop speakers or an iPod with headphones, Um, there were a couple times where I didn't have a device for whatever reason. Like my, my last computer to have a spinning hard drive uh, died quite frequently and it was often uh, being repaired. And it was in these times that I would pull out my old Discman and pump it through my desktop speakers and go back to listening albums. Uh, And and so like that, that's really when I came into music was uh, listening to a portable CD player and since it was in the the mindset of albums, it was before my family had a CD burner in a computer. Um, it kind of shaped the way I listened to music for a while. So I kind of embraced the album. I would take the the liner notes out of the CDs that I bought and pin them on my wall as artwork. Uh, I'll put a photo, I think, from 2005 um, of this in the show notes. You can also see what music I was listening to then, if you're curious.
0: Yeah, you sent this photo. It's it's great. It's um I have a Pandora station. I think that plays every single album on there. (laughs) So I see that album artwork still. You know the 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 music that we listen to at that period of our lives—high school, adolescence, college—like that's what sticks with us. We see it in our parents. We see it in people who are younger than us today. That's just the way that you identify with music of your time. And I definitely identify with that grid of album icons. But you're absolutely right, Brian, that the physical media were what constrained our idea of listening experience. And of course, that goes back to, like I said, thinking of generations again. Generations before ours were also listening to albums all the way back to vinyl, because that was how you got music. It was in a collection. The collection was predetermined for you. And sure, you could switch back and forth and you know that's the invention of the jukebox the original you know jukebox that has a mechanical arm that switches physical vinyl lps back and forth or singles back and forth but that was the limitation was either you had a robot to do this for you <laughs> literally a physical robot to do it for you or you had to take the time to switch between music that came from different physical sources so that just defined the listening experience. And, you know, we had that to some extent in our lifetimes. I'm sure that we have some listeners now who think that we are extremely old and crusty <laughs> and probably some other listeners who think you kids, you don't know how good you had it even at the time that you were growing up. So, you know, we sort of fall right in between. There.
1: Uh, Right. Like for, for the people older than us who say we, we have it easy, I, I totally understand that even though you could only listen to one album at a time with something like a Discman, a CD is still a a pretty small physical object. And I was definitely one of the people who had a wallet of CDs that I would usually carry around with me as well. So I could, albeit not with the help of a robot, still swap a disc in and out of my CD player.
0: Right. And just to peg our generation, at least from my experience is that I remember when I was a very young kid, like elementary school, I knew how to put a record on the turntable. Both my grandma's turntable on her cabinet hi-fi, and then my dad got a pretty nice new stereo when I was maybe like five or six years old. And he got the turntable, the double cassette deck, and the CD player, which was like a big new thing. And he was like, you know, maybe like the second person he knew who had a CD player. And I remember... That we went over to one of his friend's house where we were visiting, and like he was seeing CDs for the first time. And and the question that he had was, "Do you flip them over like records?" You know, like that was (laughs) that was the notion of the time. Like we, we have to figure out how this technology works. But then once we did, we had it, and it was definitely part of our life. He went out, and my dad was a big Beatles fan. He basically bought up the whole Beatles collection on CD, and because they were being remastered and re-released. And as they came out, he got them. And that was a big part of the m- music of my early childhood.
1: Uh, one final thing I'll add to this uh, this pre-digital hardware setup I had is that I, uh, I made a very conscious style choice to never use the bundled headphones. I would only wear those ubiquitous Sony behind-the-neck headphones that... A lot of people wore, and they would they would break. Like the foam around the ear uh, pieces would like just disintegrate from ear grease, which maybe I was disgusting.
0: They had the channel that you had to put the c- cable from one side to the other through, and they would always fall out. Yep, and that would get kinked, and then you would only be able to have sound in one ear. I remember those headphones, and I remember like demanding getting those. I mean, they were comfortable, and then the thing about them was that they looked like regular headphones. But they only sat in that way where the the uh, piece went behind your neck instead of over your head, like the headphones I'm wearing now as we record, like studio headphones. And I think that they were like they were like the Nintendo 64 controller of the headphone world because if you remember giving people a Nintendo 64 controller who had like never played it before, it had the three prongs, and they would always grab the two outside pieces with the joystick just chilling there in the middle and you couldn't play any games that way. You needed to hold it like off center to be able to play the games and sa- same with these headphones. You would hand them to somebody and they thought, Oh, these look like normal headphones. And they would try to put them on top of their head and they
1: just wouldn't go. And the last thing about me listening to CDs is like I said, uh, for, I think longer than most of my peers, I, I listened to like store bought or predetermined in some way albums. Uh, Ed and I did have a mutual friend in high school who, as far as I know, uh, had the first CD burner in our friend group. And this kid was a pretty smart businessman and he would buy uh, blank CDRs and he would use Napster or whatever the file sharing uh, method of the time was. And he would take requests from people, uh, download all the songs they wanted and uh, burn them to a CD and sell the CDs for $10, which still seemed like a huge bargain to me, because I was used to paying $18 to $20 for an album that wasn't guaranteed to be uh, packed with songs I liked at something like FYE.
0: So while we transition from CDs here, I should say that for me, I was a little bit odd for our age range is in that I never owned a portable CD player. But I think an interesting transition from that is that I listened to a lot of music CDs on our home Mac. And when I started doing this, I guess I should be clear also that this is another part where people who are older than us will say, you don't know how good you had it. <laughs> yeah. um, the first Mac that we had in my family was Power Mac 6100, and it had a CD-ROM drive. So I never had a Mac that didn't have a CD-ROM drive. And all of those Macs had support for playing audio CDs, which was really convenient because... You had your CD-ROM software, like your Myst and your Encarta Encyclopedia and those sorts of things, and then you also had music that you could play when you were using the computer for other purposes. So that was one of the ways that I listened to CDs pretty frequently. Like I said, my dad had the, the stereo, but that played through the whole house. And then the computer, I was frequently in front of the computer, and we had... Um, The Apple design speakers, which actually sounded pretty good, Mm -hmm. uh, were plugged into that. Or, of course, you could just plug in a pair of headphones and have your private listening experience. And on those early Macs that had CDs and music playing capabilities, the way that you played them was with a little application. It wasn't a desk accessory, but it was a separate application living in the Apple menu called the Apple CD Audio Player. And for some reason, there's no space between Apple and CD in the name of this app. I'm not quite sure why, Uh, but that's what it was called. And there were some interesting features of this application that sort of presaged what was to come in later audio applications, things that we assumed to be fairly standard. So one of the things that was interesting was that it had skins. Now, they were not particularly advanced. You could basically take the entire color, the entire player, which had this sort of metallic look, definitely years before brushed metal, but it didn't look like any other Finder window or System 7 window. It had this unique appearance to it, and the default was black, this sort of metallic black. But you could change it to green or blue or pink. There were several different colors that you could change it to. And this also became part of the listening experience on the Mac and on computers in general was that you not only got to pick what songs you listened to, but you got to pick what the interface to them looked like. Another interesting feature that I kind of forgot that it had was that it had a rudimentary playlist feature. So my dad's stereo also had this feature, and I think it went under the same name, so there was... The, the interface of the Apple CD audio player was mimicking stereos of the time and having by having all of the same buttons. And one of them is the prog button, um, which was short for program. And so if you hit the prog mode, um or the program mode, you got to say play certain tracks off of the CD in this order, and you could go. You could say maybe you just wanted to skip the songs that you didn't like. Like you said, Brian, not every album had songs that you loved, so you could just play tracks one, four, six, and nine. Or you could go out of order, or you could even repeat within that list. And the interface for that was just, uh, I'm not sure if it was drag and drop or sort of click and select across, but you had sort of the source list of the tracks on the album and then the playlist on the other side. And you could have, by default, it would just say track one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. but you could actually type in, you had to do it manually. There were no databases, there was no online way to take the fingerprint uh, music fingerprint of a CD and figure out what the tracks were. But if you typed in all of the track data for a given CD, in general, the Apple CD audio player would remember it from time to to time that you put in that CD, which was very convenient because then you would only have to do it once and then your computer sort of knew your CD collection or your music collection. One other feature of the Apple CD audio player is that in, I guess, 7.5 and beyond, because that's when it became an all-device feature, it had a control strip module. So the notion was that, of course, you are using your Mac, but at the same time you're listening to music, and those are sort of two separate activities or on different layers. You're not necessarily multitasking, but you just have music on in the background. And at some point, you might want to change that quickly or have quick access to that. So it was right there in the little band-aid of a control strip. You could uh, <laughs> click that open and and get access to your like play, pause, shuffle controls. Those were the basic features that you had on the Mac for playing audio at that time. When we are still in that hardware limited era. I mentioned that I didn't have a portable CD player, a disk man. Uh, but I did have my first portable audio player was actually a mini disc player. and I don't even know how many people have necessarily seen mini discs. They did not take off in popularity the way that I anticipated in early high school. And that's probably because of the rise of the iPod shortly thereafter. I I think I got this device in, I want to say 2000. And I have some pictures of it. It's it's still in a closet at my parents' house. And I was visiting recently and and got some pictures of this device, which is buttons everywhere. And yeah, mechanical switches for everything um, on all sides of the device. The main feature of this device that got me Attracted to it was that first of all, you know, you could create your own discs the same way as you would by like burning a CD. The I guess the big selling point for some people, especially a friend of mine who recommended it to me who had a Windows PC, was that it had optical audio in and if you had optical audio in, you could transfer files to the mini discs very quickly in comparison to even burning a CD. But if you didn't have optical audio in, you had to do line in or manual, like, uh, analog audio in. And that meant that to record a mini disc, you had to actually play the audio in real time (laughs) to the mini disc player. And I remember doing this. My system for this was that I would have uh, the songs I wanted to play on the Mac, but I didn't really have the opportunity to have it just play at 1x for 70 minutes straight because either someone else in my family would want to use the computer or, heck, I would want to use the computer, but it was just taking the full audio out of the computer. So if you did anything that like triggered an alert sound or if you were online and any sort of like chat notification or anything popped up, that would be in your music then
1: even if the computer had to work too hard and you know it it would stutter the music would the playback would stutter because it couldn't devote the full cpu to it
0: you would just be sunk so my workaround for this my terrible pathetic workaround for this was that i would burn a cd first take it to my dad's stereo and then plug the mini disc player into the headphone out of the stereo (laughs) which could be like dedicated playback and i knew wouldn't skip and i created many of my mini discs that way but that was my portable audio solution. The thing that got me interested in that was that it had uh, it had a jog shuttle, which seemed very cool at the time, and also that it had you had the ability on mini discs to actually name your tracks and have them display on the screen as it was playing. It would tell you what the song was, and that was far beyond the capability of any CD player at the time getting that metadata in there was probably impossible. Maybe possible once you had MP3 CD-capable players, but then actually having that feedback of what the song was was really difficult, And so, but you had to enter that also manually. And the you can see on the photo of this that there's a big ring around the display, and that was the control, like pre-click wheel, pre-ipod click wheel control that you could cycle through the alphabet and fairly quickly name these tracks. But I remember doing this for an entire mini disc worth of songs and just coming out at the end with my thumb just like red with the print worn off of it because you can see that this device, it's like gnarly and knobbly and has texture in every dimension including on the side where there's one side where I, I had this feature. You could plug in a separate battery pack that just had an extra AA battery in it to extend the battery life because the battery life was not very good. You would get, maybe, I don't know, like maybe three hours of playback or something. And then you were you were toast and it was a rechargeable battery. So you had no way of re-upping this. But if you had the uh, external battery pack, You could play on that, and then if that ran out, you could just shove in another AA battery and keep playing your music. (laughs) In in retrospect, it was a Rube Goldberg device. At the time, it was magical because none of us had seen or even dared to think of the iPod at that point.
1: Those were the hardware solutions we had uh, to listening to music before MP3s. And then once MP3s came out, I would say both of us actually went back to listening to them primarily through software on our Macs of that era. Um, and I think the first uh, Mac specific MP3 listening software to get mainstream or, or market saturation was MacAmp, um, not an official port of the popular Win AMP, but clearly uh, inspired by it. Win amp, by the way, is still going strong today. Uh, I looked it up. I think AOL owns Winamp. And I actually end up using Winamp at one of my jobs because there's like uh, some soundboard software that's triggered to like talk to Winamp. So I actually deal with it pretty regularly.
0: That's kind of remarkable that it's kept on this long. Is it
1: still an AOL product? I thought that it went open source at some point. Maybe it went open source. Yeah, at some point it was an AOL product, if not still currently. Uh, But anyway, MacAmp... Uh, which in its final days was renamed Macast or Macast. I don't know how you you would pronounce that. Um, I never used this. Uh, we actually we, like we had heard of it and uh, we put it in our notes to discuss. But um, I definitely downloaded it uh, for, for the first time uh, in preparation for this episode. And man, it had a very particular color scheme. It was
0: green. Everything
1: was green. Everything was a very certain shade of green. Uh, and like Ed said. Um, with these uh mp3 playing applications a big feature was you could uh make your own uh skins for the the interface or download other people's skins and I, this macamp uh supported that at least in the final version that i got today but the default is just very very green
0: yeah i used i think it was macamp lite because that was the free version and that was definitely the first mp3 player that i had on the mac and I'm willing to bet that I got it off of a Mac Addict CD at some point. I remember that Mac Addict would distribute CDs with each of their issues of the magazine, and they would have sort of like a launcher app that would take you on a tour of what was available on that month's CD. And they would usually include, I think, four songs on the CD that were MP3s that would play in the background of that like launcher app. And, of course, they were also just on the CD as plain MP3 files. And I'm guessing that they distributed an MP3 player mm-hmm. maybe on every CD to take care of that MP3 decoding and playing, um, or maybe just on one particular CD, and I took it off of there. I think that was where I got my first start in MP3s, maybe slightly before the Napster era kicked off and into the beginning of the Napster era, and then also the mp3.com era. Oh, I remember that. I got very few songs off of mp3.com just because I had such terrible internet connectivity, but I remember signing up for it. And one of the things I got was a CD in the mail of MP3s from mp3.com, which just seems entirely backwards. But um, it had maybe like, you know, they they touted on the front, you know, 200 MP3s or something. I still have some of those in my iTunes library today. And I'm fairly certain that at first I was playing those through MacAmp. Because it was basically the only option that I knew of at the time to turn those files into actual sound that would go through speakers. One interesting thing about MacAmp, we've found a page that's still hosting the file for it. So if you have a classic Mac or an emulator and you want to check it out, we'll put that in the show notes. And a little disclaimer that they have at the bottom of the page says... Unfortunately, due to the amount of processing power required in decoding MP3 files, a PowerPC Macintosh is required. And that's an interesting thing that we should mention here, is that the MP3 era, there there was no reason that people weren't adopting MP3s. It was just that the technology wasn't there. And as soon as the technology was there, there was adoption. Like, people were looking for a way to get music off of CDs get it in a format that they could actually hold onto on their computers and not fill their entire hard drives. Remember, CD is, what, like 800 megabytes of storage? And at this time, I think I had a four gigabyte hard drive. So that's just a handful of CDs if you keep them in their original format, which is basically AIFF, uncompressed AIFF. And so you could do it, you could put an entire CD on your hard drive, and then your hard drive would be a quarter full. So the, the need was to get those songs down to a reasonable size, but also reasonable quality. And I think reasonable size came first and reasonable quality came later. (laughs) Yeah. As many of us learned, I guess we skipped past some of the, uh, hardware players that we didn't really use very much. Um, Ones that were precursors to the iPod that quickly died thereafter. The sort of uh, Flash-based players of that time, which were uh, like the Diamond Rio, was huge at that time. And I think they had 32 megabyte, 64 megabyte, and maybe 128 megabyte models.
1: But those would be expensive.
0: Right, because that was 128 megabytes of flash storage in 2000 or 2001.
1: Yeah, as long as we're talking about this, I had a Diamond Rio, the 600 class, um, which had 32 megabytes of storage. Uh, Once I got it, once I had been uh, using MP3 software, which we'll get back to on my Mac, uh, and I encoded this was not a sweet spot by any means, but it was good enough for me that I encoded MP3s at ninety-six uh KPBS um to fit twelve, like on average twelve songs onto this one MP3 player. So it kind of went back to essentially a glorified disc man. I could only have one album's worth of songs with me at any time. And I couldn't even swap out, you know, like a disc or anything. But the freedom of being able to like Ed said, like manipulate it from a a store of files on my computer totally changed my life. Uh, Being able to like load it up in the morning and have 12 songs, all of which I loved that I could listen to uh, until I got home. That was all I needed. Exactly. This is why I've
0: heard from people who used these was that it was like a daily ritual.
1: Yeah, it was. We asked on our Twitter
0: account for people to say what their solu- pre-iPod music listening solutions were, and my friend Todd from grad school said that he had a 32 meg Rio, and he got like six songs because apparently he was encoding at higher quality. And he said that was you know, every day you got to pick your six songs that you were going to carry around with you for that day, mm-hmm. just the same as if like you had, I guess, a discman portable CD player. And you didn't want to carry around the wallet of CDs. You would put one CD in it, and then that would be your music for the day. No other options.
1: Uh, getting back into the software side of things, um, the really the only non Apple MP3 listening software I ever used was Panic Software's Audion.
0: I also used Audion as my primary player as soon as I graduated from Macamp. Audion was. My primary player for music and was used
1: literally every day by me for several years. Same here. Really until OS ten, even into OS ten.
0: Yes, there is an OS ten version of Audion that I don't know if it runs anymore. It's probably it probably doesn't run on Intel Max. I haven't tested it.
1: Yeah, me neither. But uh we'll put a link in the show notes. If you go to Panic's site, they make it very easy to find. You can scroll down to the bottom of their homepage and they have a link to all of their old software, even classic Mac software.
0: Yeah, with all the downloads, they've got this lovely flashing message at the top that says, warning, the software is not supported. But it's all there, and you can download basically any version of any of their products. It's a really cool archive that they keep up and running. One interesting thing was, well, in, in going back and researching Audion, We've mentioned this before on the show, mentioned it a couple times on Twitter. The definitive story is, quote, the Audion story uh, that I think Cable Sasser wrote. And it was on the occasion of retiring Audion from active development. But it tells the entire story from just a seed of an idea up through the competition with SoundJam and the flirtations with AOL and Apple to get them to either buy out the software or hire them on as employees. That never turned out. Uh, but they were, they were very positive even then that they were happy that they were still independent and Panic Software. And I think, again, with hindsight, most people in the Mac community and the iOS community these days are also very happy that Panic is a thriving, independent company yes. and not just a little subsidiary of Apple. So the Audion story has some ups and downs, but definitely a happy ending. But going back all the way to the beginning of it, I thought was interesting. A quote from there is they said that they had, quote, one goal, we wanted to listen to our music CDs on our computers while we worked, and we wanted it to be stylish. So this is exactly what we were saying, Brian, is that we were mostly still dealing with physical CDs, mostly albums that were you know, mass-produced, and professionally produced, but also some burned CDs were starting to come into the mix as that technology became more prevalent among our friends, and then once we got it. But the primary focus here was CD playback in a way that made sense and looked good. Again, this whole notion of tying together like visual aesthetic and audio aesthetic in terms of your music tastes and your artistic tastes. So the way that Audion started was actually as part of, a, I guess, a little app bundle called the Panic Pack. But after a while, they realized that the Panic Pack was dominated by their music player app, Audion, and it was released officially as 1.0 in August of 1999. And for chronological context, that's almost exactly two years before the unveiling of the original iPod.
1: And so like Ed said, uh, Audion was visually customizable. Um, It came, what's the default skin? I think it's, is it smooth face? Smooth face. Yeah. Uh, And I don't think this was um, immediately, but eventually these skins had alpha channels, so they had translucency.
0: No, they started with that in 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 the very beginning. That was like one of their goals. That was part of this visual aesthetic. They wanted it to be stylish. And what they said was they didn't have a direct way of doing alpha channels. So we've talked about Kaleidoscope in the past. And so even in Kaleidoscope 2, where you got this ability to change the border of the window, there was no alpha channel transparency And I think there was, or there was very limited applications of it. You couldn't really do it on ordinary windows. You could do it a little bit on like drop down menus and stuff. Mm -hmm. But so what they really wanted as part of this stylish aesthetic was to have the ability to do blending alpha channels, smooth shadows that made it appear like this was floating above the rest of the classic Mac interface. And so they worked on various hacks to get it implemented And basically, I guess what it does is it looks at what is under the window. And instead of actually having, there was no system API, you know, Quartz did not exist at that point. We're not in the OS X way of doing things where every window is a layer and they all have alpha channels and they are all being dynamically rendered, mostly on the GPU these days. So what they did was they looked at the windows and, the layers underneath computed each pixel by the alpha channel and then drew that as an opaque pixel.
1: <laughs> yeah, uh, that's right. The feature I was thinking of that came later was in addition to alpha channels, you, uh, skin, well, they call them faces, face designers could designate a certain part of the skin to, um, to, to shift its, uh, its hue, its color. Um, so you may get like, uh, like the Apple CD audio player may, shipped with a uh, default black and you could kind of change the Chrome around it, but there was still the, the display, the skeuomorphic display readout where the track number and, you know, whether repeat or shuffle were selected uh, would be displayed. And with these later faces in Audion, maybe that area or another area could be set by the user if they didn't want it to be translucent green, they could make it translucent pink or blue or really anywhere on the like the RGB spectrum.
0: I think this was a reaction to something that was very common in theming at the time and definitely saw in kaleidoscope scheming and also was definitely influenced by the colored IMAX at the time. Yes, yeah. So people would, want, would create sort of like an iMac-inspired theme, and they made the one that was Bondi Blue because the original iMac was Bondi Blue. And then they came out with the yum iMacs that were in five different colors. What was it? Like lime and tangerine and blueberry and strawberry and... Grape or something. And grape. Yeah, those were the five. And then anyone who had an iMac-inspired theme said, oh, well, I have to update it for the current iMacs. And then they would have to have six themes because they would have one for each color. And they would have to release them as a pack or they would release them independently, depending on, I think, the way that Audion had a face gallery on their website, but every single one was a separate one. If you go sort of dig into those pages, you see where you have these multiple copies of a single theme. Well, just forget that. Just designate a colorful area of your theme and let the software do all of that color generation for you. Saves the artist the time and also makes that whole scheme distribution or face distribution or theme distribution much simpler.
1: I know I downloaded a bunch of themes, but I was 99% of the time in one very specific one. I'm not even sure how to pronounce this. Uh, we'll put a link in the show notes. Um, it's Beholdenut. some behodenut preset. Are those underscores part of the title? Yeah, the underscores are part <laughs> of the title too, all lowercase. Um, and uh, it kind of looked like... Um, uh, Ed's mini disc player had a, uh, a remote that uh, had a very small LCD on it. And this kind of always to me felt like, uh, like a very small handheld remote for controlling, uh, a larger, uh, whether it be a disc man or a stereo. And so I liked having this in the corner of my screen with just like the, the minimum readouts necessary, uh, for, for like what was playing and what modes were active.
0: Well, I used one that was literally in the corner of my screen because I remembered this by its by what it looked like. I, I have a clear memory of the, the visuals of this. And then I had to dig through the face archive to find out what this uh, face was called. And it's called reintegration. And now as I'm looking at it in our notes document, I see that reintegration is actually misspelled. <laughs> so all of these had some weird names. Um, but this was... Instead of having a window-shaped player, even the um, the smooth face default sort of resembled a window, sort of resembled like a clock radio, and then had like a readout that was like a offshoot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this face was an arc-shaped one. Very few looked like this. But it was only designed so that it would fit in the top left corner of the screen. If you put it anywhere else, it just had this sharp corner and looked ridiculous. But if you moved it all the way up into the top left, pixel perfect into the top left, then you just had this arc of controls that sort of gracefully came down from the menu bar and then slid into the, the side of the screen and showed the track name, artist name, that sort of information, and then had the controls along that edge of the window. And that was actually one that really benefited from the, uh, from the hue shifting because it came only in light blue. But then when you had the hue shifting, you could make it any color that you wanted, including sort of like desaturating it down to gray, if that was your thing. Right, to
1: make it more neutral. Uh, in addition to visual customization, uh, Audion had a pretty robust plugin architecture, and it came with a, a bunch by default. Uh, there is the always fun karaoke mode, Or it would try to, you know, uh, either blur, sometimes you could still hear it, or sometimes successfully remove the vocal track.
0: I don't know what sort of audio magic they did on this. Like, from Audion's karaoke mode, all the way up until today, Overcast's smart speed, there has been nothing else that automatically manipulates audio that has made me, has just given me that jaw drop reaction. Like, those two things separated by 15 years. But you would just jump into karaoke mode, and it would sort of dynamically figure out what it thought was the lead vocal track. And I don't know how it pulled this out of, like, garbagey, 96K, lossy MP3s. And it did an awesome job. In fact, sometimes it would even leave behind the... The backing vocals. Right, the harmony vocals. And it just did an inc- i mean it would sound a little bit underwater a little, bo- little bit robot voicey but to be honest they started that way <laughs> it only made it a little bit more so and i don't know what they did but that was a super cool feature that you know all all the kids with their winamp saying what are you using the-? you know winamp is the standard blah, blah blah this is what kicked off the mp3 revolution you showed them that feature and they went holy cow what is this <laughs>
1: I fired up Audion today uh, just to go back into it. And in the settings for karaoke, it's not really a setting. It's more like turn this mode on or off. It does have a little, like, subtitle under it that says uh, this will only work on stereo MP3s, and the result will always be mono. I don't know if that provides any clues to anybody. Certainly not to me. But, yeah, it's it's fascinating. That
0: would depend on the mastering, you would think.
1: Like, I don't, yeah, I don't understand how that separation makes a difference.
0: Oh, but from... From the uh from the Audion story, and you know this is the creators talking about their own software. They described this mode as quote the hilarious and surprisingly effective karaoke mode." Yeah, and I couldn't agree more. Especially on the surprisingly effective. This was this was a true magic trick in 2000 or 2001, whenever that feature came out.
1: And you know, like we jokingly talked about uh, Mac Amp requiring PowerPC just for the power to decode mp3 files uh i never experienced lag like on top of decoding mp3 files uh this is you know this is applying its magic and like ed said you could turn it on and off at a whim and it would it would just go at least as i remember it
0: right like right as the as the playback continued it wasn't like you had to turn on the mode and then start a song and it would be karaoke mode no you just like went up to a menu command and it went on and off and out went the vocals, in back came the vocals. It was a very, very cool
1: feature. Uh there's another plugin that I used <laughs> to the detriment of some people. Um, and you could adjust the speed of the playback. And I think it was intended just like purely for fun. You could slow it down or uh you know, like double speed, make everything sound like Alvin and the Chipmunks.
0: They suggested actually taking Alvin and the Chipmunks and slowing it half speed so you
1: sounded what heard what it actually sounded like. Yeah. Um, but I would leave this mode on. I remember this very specifically at 103% because I remember thinking that like just that tiny, like upward pitch and, uh, like slightly faster was what I was hearing over the radio. Like all pop songs always sounded a little brighter on the radio to me. And I was like, oh, I can replicate that with all my music. And I remember people, I think it may have even been you, Ed, was like, we were trying to, to, Sing along or play a piano or a guitar or something along to a song, and we're like, These notes don't exist. <laughs>
0: <laughs>
1: yeah, that's never gonna work. Yeah, there's a uh,
0: there's a famous example of this. I don't know if you know this the Beatles song When I'm 64.
1: Mm, mm, mm.
0: The version that made it on the album is shifted up a semitone from. The original and not pitch shifted like we can do now fairly easily. You know, the only way that you could shift is by doing speed mm-hmm. increase, which is why Alvin and the Chipmunks had to sing at half speed. Right. Um, but that exact same thing that you mentioned was that Paul McCartney thought that the song sounded, you know, it, it has kind of some deep themes to it of, you know, like aging with someone. And he thought that it sounded too morose. So they upped it by a semitone. And you're like, is this real? Is this apocryphal? Like, what is going on here? But if you have software, I think I did this in Audacity, actually has it where you can measure it by semitone instead of by, you know, pitch or by percent. Um, Let's you just plug in, tone it down a semitone and lengthen. And oh, man, it makes a world of difference. It's a really interesting phenomenon. And, you know, today people are critical about listening to podcasts on high speed. I I make no judgment. I hope you're listening to this on uh, one one and an eighth, 1.125, and smart speed in Overcast sounds the best that way. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But, um, you know, it's very different with the spoken word versus music, and it really can have that effect. So you might have been, you know, what you perceive, Brian, might have actually been sort
1: of true for you. Finally, uh, my experience with Audion, I never used their native playlists. Uh, And in going back and looking at it today... Oh, I
0: definitely did. I did all the time.
1: So maybe you you can talk about this because going back in today, I was like, wow, why didn't I? Like, it had pretty good playlist support. Smart, smart smart-ish.
0: I don't remember using smart playlists. I remember making manual playlists. And this is what you're familiar with, Brian, is that you had your MP3s in a folder. A folder. (laughs)
1: That's exactly right. On
0: your hard drive, right, flat structure. I think for a while I just named them by song name. And that got kind of disastrous and then you would do it by um, I did oh this was also disastrous. Now that I use a Unix-based system, artist name space pipe space oh no, song name. I've been renaming these files gradually like getting away from that cuz like I said it's just disaster for for Unix-based system because the pipe has special meaning. Um, but you would have this folder. You would open it up in list view. You would open up Audion, and you would have a current playlist or open up a new playlist. And you would just drag songs in in the order that you wanted to listen to them. And again, you could listen to multiple copy, or you could put in multiple copies of a song if you wanted. And then you hit save, and that saved as an Audion playlist file, which you put in a different folder. Or you could put in the same folder. You know, it was up to you but I had a folder of songs and a folder of playlists. And as I recall, the mechanism in Audion is you say, I want to listen to music, open Audion, and then either go to open recent or you go to open and you get an open dialogue box, which would go back to that folder where you kept all your playlists, you would select your playlist and it would go. I think you could also navigate to that folder and double-click a playlist and it would launch and go in Audion. But that was the system, was that everything was modular. You had the software, the playlists, and the music files. It was not like an iTunes library where ideally, and for most people, they don't even know or see or care yeah. where those files live. They're abstract. I mean it's not away. as it's not as bad as iPhoto, hmm. where everything actually goes into like a package. Right. But the notion is that you shouldn't have to dive into your music folder in iTunes to find individual mp3 songs that like that that is not the way that you interact with the music but it was very much the way that you interacted with music in the classic mac was file-based hierarchical folder organization systems and yeah if you had a whole album that you loved maybe you would put that whole album into a folder that was how my system evolved over time that was how it transitioned when i transitioned over to itunes um, I remember the first time that iTunes automatically organized my library and I was livid <laughs> that it had moved everything into folders that just seemed nonsensical to me. Today, I, I probably shouldn't go into this in too much detail, but today I make sure that iTunes does not automatically organize my library. And furthermore, I have... Oh, what the heck? I'll put a screenshot of this in the show notes. Um, I have... An extremely complicated set of Hazel rules that keeps my tilde slash music folder in what I consider to be good order. And this includes one rule where I don't want to have a folder for an artist if I only have one song by that artist. Like, it's insane to me to have folder with one album with one file in it. So I have a Hazel rule that you, in Hazel, you can detect if something is the only item in a folder, or you can get the count of items in a folder. And what it does is if something is the only song file in a folder, it pushes it one level up the hierarchy. And then it pushes it one level up the hierarchy until it gets to the music folder. And anything that's not in a folder gets put into a folder called singles. Smart. Right. And then any empty folder gets put to the trash. <laughs> like I said, it's completely baroque and <laughs> very particular to me but I still have you know like we were talking about generations at the top of the show I still have that need I'm I'm a child of the file system <laughs> like I want to be able to lay a hand on the songs that I have and I'll talk about that a little bit later when we talk about what we're using today for music applications like I still want to lay a hand on those songs I know what they are. I know how they've been encoded. I know what's exactly in those files. Yep,
1: uh, I'm the same way. I will chime in with you well, definitely when you get to there. <laughs> uh, but to to, to contrast, um, you're like you have Hazel rules and everything. Today, I I've given up and I let iTunes do its automatic uh, artist album foldering. Uh, but back then, I did just have one folder, because I also didn't have that many MP3s. It did get unwieldy, but they were all just the the song name as the file name.
0: Oh, yeah. So, like, I have today almost all of those. I mean, I'm sure I lost some things over the years. But I have today in iTunes, I have a single album that's called MP3 Revival! <laughs> which is all of those old MP3s I collected from... Napster and burned CDs and various garbagey sources back in our school days. And I remember the way that I got them was they were on the beige G3 Power Mac that my family had. And when we were clearing it out, I burned a single data CD that just said MP3s from G3, popped it into my PowerBook, pulled them all off of there, put them into a single album in iTunes, and... That was it. That was the amount that I had. So I must not have had more than 800 megabytes of MP3 files.
1: Yeah. So I was in a similar situation. And so I had this one gargantuan folder of files. And then I had one folder within it that was titled Space for Rio. So it was always at the top when sorted by name. And I would drag the ones when I was making my playlist. We're going back to this daily ritual. I would drag songs into it and have the size column enabled in the list view so I could see when I went over, it was like 30.6 megabytes or something because you know they had to have room for the OS and everything. And that was how I managed that stupid little device. Um,
0: how did you actually transfer stuff to that? Because I, I'm looking here, we, we put in some stuff in our notes about... Uh, features that were added to Audion. So this was from a Macworld review of Audion 2.5. And one of the things that it touts as a feature is it says, support for transferring files to portable MP3 devices. Diamond Rio 500, Creative Nomad 2, Creative Nomad 2MG, and Creative Nomad Jukebox supported presently. Plans to add other MP3 devices in the future. Now, Audion 2.5 in this review came out in July of 2001, I believe. And... The iPod was fall of 2001, September, Mm -hmm. I think September or October.
1: Yeah, um, I don't know if uh, it came this way out of the box or I did something to it. It probably shipped with a CD in the box, right? It probably did. That had like proprietary software. And I probably hated it. Or it was probably so buggy.
0: Well, it can't be. It can't be as bad as me taking MP3s, burning them onto a CD with Roxio Toast, and then putting that in my dad's stereo and putting it on mini disc. You had it good.
1: Yeah. So basically, somehow I turned the the device itself into like a glorified flash drive, and it would mount as such. So I I would just make sure that my folder on the hard drive didn't exceed however many megabytes. And then I would just open it up, select all, and copy them over, you know, and delete what was on there first.
0: That, of course, was part of the voodoo of the iPod right? when it first came out, was that it was a full-fledged hard drive, and it split. It, it gave you as much hard drive space for files as was not taken up by music, but it uses that really cryptic iPhone or iPod and then later iPhone folder structure for sort of squirreling away the music, so you couldn't get at it. And so it was sort of caught between those two worlds. It wasn't just like plug it in and drag songs onto it.
1: So so even though Audion had support for playlists, like really good playlists, and eventually support for managing devices, I never used it for either of those things and stayed purely in the file system for that.
0: One other product that we would be remiss in not mentioning is SoundJam MP. So this was the direct competition to audion unfortunately neither of us neither of us really used it yeah we were happy with audion i I was thrilled with audion um but this was owned by cassidy and green who you may know for such famous titles as conflict catcher which would help you manage your extensions on classic mac and games like crystal quest and glider pro
1: so yeah like i like ed said uh we don't have much personal experience in it. Really, all I know about it comes from Panic's own Audion story because they were on the other side uh, and its Wikipedia article. One of the things I found interesting is that two of the three people who wrote Sound Jam actually wrote it after having left Apple where they were working on the Copeland OS. And as the, the lore goes, Sound Jam was eventually bought back by Apple and eventually turned into iTunes.
0: Yeah, so if any of you have primary experience with SoundJam, if it was your main music player, we'd love to hear what that experience was like and what your transition to iTunes was like because apparently it was the underlying engine, but I don't know what that was like going from that, hey, I've got a folder full of MP3s and some SoundJam playlists, I don't know if they were separate files or not, uh moving over to the monolithic iTunes library. Another interesting thing here is that I came across this also in the Audion Chronicle, is that pre-iTunes, in the early developer releases of OS X, 10.0, there was an application called Music Player. This is almost impossible to Google. (laughs) Just as people now complain that Apple's apps like Calendar and Contacts and Mail, it's very hard to find things about them, well, you don't know how hard it is to find because those have actually recently updated things. So if you search for Apple Mail or Apple Calendar, you're going to find stuff on Google. Good luck trying to search for Apple Music Player and turning up this obscure and extremely short-lived <laughs> OS 10 app. So I, I, I was looking for it. So I put in Apple and then quote, Music Player, close quote. And then I just started removing search terms with the minus in Google, so I was minus iPhone, minus iPod, minus iOS, minus iTunes. I still wasn't getting it. And I'm like, this looks like it was in an early OS 10 build. So I wound up eventually finding this with the Google search site colon arstechnica.com space Syracusa space music player, <laughs> which sure enough told me that it was in OS 10 DP4. And we've got a link to John Syracuse's uh, review of OS 10 DP4 and a screenshot of this app, I noticed immediately that I thought that it looks a lot like the early versions of the DVD player controls. So maybe some of this code moved over into that application later on in OS 10.
1: And uh, I thought it reminded me of the speakable items widget in that it has kind of like the aqua bubbly um, interface. and you know it looks like a, a floating tangible, or as Steve would say, lickable widget sitting on your screen.
0: But it's interesting that the paradigm for this app was very much like the paradigm for Audion, where you had a player window and a playlist window, where you had controls and then you had the, the songs that were actually going to be played and you could show one or the other or both of them. Whereas then once iTunes came out, that was all rolled into the single iTunes window and then the mini player window. I don't think that was in iTunes 1.0, but we'll delve into the uh, history of iTunes another time because we've already got lots of classic Mac stuff going on here.
1: Uh, so to wrap up MP3 software, we've mostly been talking about players, but there were obviously ways to get MP3s. Um, I think all of the choices we've said so far, at least definitely Sound Jam and Audion could rip straight off of uh, CDs, they had MP3 encoders, which was actually a big deal. So
0: Audion added that in version two, and they were really self-conscious of the fact that they didn't have it in version one, and SoundJam did. I also had a whole bunch of other little miscellaneous tools in uh, a folder that still lives on my computer in the, in the archives. Um, I had absolutely no recollection of these until I started digging around in there, I had separate apps that enabled me to do this whole ripping and encoding process. One was called MP3 tool099. Great name. The the README file says a program for getting and setting MPEG layer three tags and doing other things to layer three files. So that just shows you how early it was they were talking they were calling them layer three files. Um, and then I had a encoder called mpecker that's m-p-e-c-k-e-r that was the actual encoding program and i also had a separate program you know, like again this was all modular and cobbling it together called track thief that was how you actually got the original aif data off of a cd and it was touting its speed advantages it says when the destination disk is fast enough and unfragmented enough to keep up, this can make a big difference in speed. On my 7600-132, that's 132 megahertz, Track Thief is more than twice as fast as the QuickTime audio track importer. System requirements. 68020 or better CPU, macOS 7.0 or later, at least one CD drive. <laughs> you might have a whole desk full, who knows. And about 1.5 megabytes of
1: RAM. So yeah, you may have... You may have- relied on your main player program to encode, or you may have had a whole toolbox to encode. And of course, uh, you probably had one, if not more programs that would aid you in getting music files off the internet. (laughs) Uh, I'm not going to get into how, you know, how legal or illegal it is, that point has Napster been. Napster
0: was illegal. Yeah. The, the courts decided.
1: Yeah. Um, I was actually. <laughs> that doesn't mean we didn't use it all the time. Absolutely. I was, uh, I actually, um, took a screenshot out of Audion's, uh, help pages or help reference in, uh, in OS nine. And, um, there's actually a section, uh, finding MP3s. And there are a couple choices. One of them is uh, there are software solutions like Napster. And the quote is, it's easy, quick, and free of the dreaded dead link. And sure, it's a bit controversial, but innovative things usually are.
0: Right. And I mentioned mp3.com, where uh, a lot of artists were uploading their own stuff. So it was a bit more above board. Everything on there was legal. Uh, The Mac addict CDs, where they were licensing music and I was pulling it off. But of course, a lot of it was Just trading around, even if not on Napster, maybe, I know for me personally, my internet connection was dirt slow at the time, so Napster was not really a whole lot of fun. But, uh, you know, the the paradigm at the time was to rip CDs, and then that became, of course, part of Apple's official marketing with iTunes pre-iPod, but with the release of iTunes, the tagline was rip, mix, burn. And that was that ability to escape the physical album that limited your songs. You could rip them, then you could mix them into playlists and then put them back on a CD. That was the place still that you were going to listen to your music was off of a CD, but it was one of your own creation.
1: The rip, mix, burn campaign coincided with uh, the revision of the G3 all-in-one iMac uh, obviously that had CD burners maybe all the way down to the, the entry level, um, but also the revision that moved away from a variety of candy colors and uh, got into some patterns.
0: I think you're right, Brian. I think that that was the first revision of the iMac that had burners all the way down to the, the low end of the iMac line because... In my family, there was an iMac, one of the the yum color iMacs that was bottom of the line, and it had a CD drive, a slot loading CD drive, but it didn't have the capability to burn CDs, and that was a major limitation because at that point there was like no getting data out of that iMac because it, you know, floppy drive was gone. You had USB drives. That was m- maybe if you had a USB drive, that was your only way of getting data out of that iMac. Once they revved them one more time and everybody had CD burners, then you had a quick and easy way to get data off of the iMac. And also, it gave you these capabilities with iTunes to mix and match and you know, sort of revolutionize your music collection. Again, for, for most of us, the the MP3s were coming either from Burn CDs from friends or from the internet. You mentioned Napster, of course, was the the leader at that time. But then as Napster went away, other illicit file trading software kicked up. There was LimeWire. I remember Kazaa, which was notorious on Windows for just being full of viruses. A little bit safer on the Mac, but it almost never worked. I also remember that I
1: used Hotline a lot, which was a Mac-only uh, Was it Mac only? I think so. I think we covered it a little bit in our early internet episode too.
0: Yeah, it was a proprietary server-based software where you could log on to a server and it had chat and uh, news bulletin boards and also a file sharing section. And I remember getting a lot of miscellaneous random MP3s off of there. Unlike Napster, you couldn't just go on and search and have the world at your fingertips. Uh, It was very particular to whoever was frequenting the same servers as you. And I have some bizarro MP3s from that era from people who were on the same servers that I was who were just creating them. I have some really weird synthesized music and like guitars recorded over terrible mics mixed in with the, uh, the what's, what's it called? Uh, the text to speech oh, voices yeah. <laughs> like uh, cellos. <laughs> um Really, really weird stuff of period piece of the era,
1: and so like like we were just wrapping up uh, with this iMac that uh, we'll post post uh, an image of the
0: things in this image. So it's it's a flower power iMac, which to this day I swear it looks like mold. It looks like something that's been l- left at the back of the fridge for far too long. <laughs> this was uh, this was not the best design decision that Apple has ever made, given that. You know, the iPod was shortly to come out and was one of the best design decisions that they ever made. Um, And also, as you pointed out earlier in the show, Brian, you had to have those behind-the-air headphones. And there's a pair sitting there right in front of the iMac. And people are quick to notice, have always been quick to notice, when a third-party product shows up in an Apple promo like recently with the Mac Pro, when, well, to this day, there's still no standalone Apple display that's a high resolution display, a 4K or 5K display that'll plug into it. So they showed the promos with, I think it was sharp 4K displays hooked up to the Mac Pro and everyone's like, this is so out of place. Apple's showing off someone else's product in this promo. Well, there it is. There are your uh, behind the ear headphones, Sony headphones Right, front and center, next to the keyboard of that uh, slightly past ex- expiration date iMac, <laughs> <at. laughs>
1: and then in the fall of two thousand one, Apple released the iPod. And uh, like Ed said at the top of the show, the guys at Connected have done a really good job covering the history of the iPod. So we won't get into a whole lot of detail on it here. Um, I think we just decided to talk about maybe our first experiences with an iPod in general, our own first iPods, and maybe the favorite model. ever had
0: my first experience with the ipod was a family friend had a first generation ipod was the first person that i knew who had an ipod and i remember staying at their house and he was not there at the time i think it was like late at night and i picked up the ipod just to play with it to see how it worked you know how the um how the click wheel control worked how it, just the interface worked because it was completely new. It was completely revolutionary. And I turned it on. I sort of scrolled through his songs. I didn't actually, well, I guess, you know, unlike an iPhone today, it didn't have an external speaker. So I actually hit play on a song, but no headphones plugged in. You just get, you just get nothing. Um, The only sound that it could make was uh, the click, if anything. But the distinct memory that I have of it was that I played around with it. I saw how the software worked. And then I couldn't figure out how to turn it off. (laughs) And I just had to like, I I was completely defeated. And I just had to like put it down on a table and walk away.
1: (laughs) That's right. Because the only physical switch on the top was hold, right? Like no accidental button presses.
0: Yeah. And there's no power button. So, (laughs) you know, there was obviously a way to turn it off. (laughs) It was push and hold menu, which makes sense. It's like go back, go back, go back, go back, go all the way back to off. This just occurred to me that still holds today on the Apple TV. Push and hold menu puts it to sleep immediately. Mind blown.
1: Oh, you're so right. Because if you had one of those, I think it was only MacBooks and MacBook Pros, the early ones that had IR sensors, if you, and they came with remotes, um, you could put your Mac to sleep the same way.
0: Oh yeah, that's right. So that control metaphor that totally baffled me in 2001 has been around for 15 years and Apple's still continuing it today.
1: My, my first experience with an iPod, uh, the memory I have is not as, uh, <laughs> not as full fledged. It was actually the same mutual friend I mentioned before who had the CDR business. Um, he had an iPod pretty quickly after the announcement. Um, so he, he would bring it to school and let people listen to, uh, like actually listen to it on the earbuds. And that was my first impression is that those earbuds the very first revision of the white Apple earbuds really hurt my ears. And it, oh, they were not fun. And they came with a uh, little black foam covers to put over them, uh, which he removed because he didn't want to like mix our earwax or something. Uh, so I got like just the naked white earbuds and they, they hurt. They hurt almost immediately.
0: Yeah, I, I didn't even really like, I guess the previous iteration from now, from the present were okay, but... Uh, I never really liked the the earpods. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't say it. I know. Yeah. Ear, earpods, earpods. The earpods are okay, that earbuds were not so great. So what was your first iPod that you actually owned?
1: It was the third generation, the first one with the 30-pin dock connector, um, and I think 15 gigs. Oh,
0: that's right, because they were straight firewire
1: before that. Yeah, uh, it was it was my graduating from high school gift, uh, take this off to college, um, and I remember my parents bought whatever tier it was, I think 15 cause it was like the middle tier. And so it came with all the fun accessories, like a, a belt loop pouch and the dock and not, no, not a remote, but um, maybe that was just it, but it came with a bunch of accessories that you would be hard pressed to find in any Apple, uh, mobile device today. Yeah, it
0: definitely came with the dock. That was also my first iPod and, uh, we're going to have lots of. Uh, shots of the packaging for that in the show notes because I still have the box that it came in, which was this giant cube of a box. It's kind of amazing compared to the packaging that they have today. And so the third generation was it was one of the first that had the uh, non-moving, the sort of touchpad click wheel, but it still had... The I guess it wasn't a click wheel yet. It was just a wheel. <laughs> I forget what they called it because um, it, it still had the four control buttons up above that, which was actually really easy to use. Like when you were driving, because you could tell where all all the controls were.
1: And they illuminated, right? Didn't they have like red
0: back? They were red. Yes. And, uh, on the packaging, it actually shows that on the one side. So two faces of the cube are white and two faces of the cube are black. And on the black one, it shows it like in a dark room with the red controls and the screen lit up. And it actually says it touts it as a feature illuminated controls, backlit LCD and illuminated buttons for easy readability in any light conditions.
1: Yeah. I remember thinking that this, like, it was just so cool, especially with the backlights. Um, because the screen kind of had like a blue tinge. It wasn't like a, a straight white and the um and the buttons, as we said, were red. So it was like it it was just like it was so cool. And you know, the ad campaigns were all about selling it as like the cool thing. I don't know if this is when we had that silhouette dancing campaign. The silhouette campaign was shortly
0: after, yeah. So like second and third generation iPod was definitely right in that time.
1: And and you know, obviously those were black silhouettes dancing and you could only see the iPod device itself, and the white iBuds, like iBuds, Jesus, (laughs) Uh, earbuds. Um, Everything about the iPod was just cool, and the marketing reinforced how cool it was, and its like rapid ascent in the world of consumer electronics confirmed how cool it was. But with all that, uh, my favorite iPod that I ever owned, and I owned a couple, um, was the first-generation iPod Shuffle. Uh, I thought, I I think I may have bought it around the same time I bought my first USB flash drive. So there was definitely the novelty of like, no cables. <laughs> you can just plug it in anywhere. uh, it was very cool to me. Um, and another thing was how Apple put in, like, I think the iPods at that time were hovering around uh, 10 to 20 gigabyte capacities. And the first iPod shuffle started at half a gig, um, which is still way more than the 32 megabyte uh, Rio that I started my MP3 journey with, but um Apple revved iTunes to coincide with the shuffle launch. <laughs> they called like this really cool feature called autofill where it will fill <laughs> your shuffle just to capacity with like a selection from your, your library.
0: It's like the smart playlist feature in iTunes where you can say automatically limit to so much. Exactly.
1: Um, but it's something about setting that up brought me back to like my folder that I had to cap at 30 megs. Um, and something about, you, I would have to, I made a, a master playlist that was like only the songs that I would ever definitely want to listen to if they came on shuffle, which was still the majority of my music library, but like the process of selecting those and having the shuffle, like pick a random selection from that playlist, whenever I plugged it in, like it was a nice throwback. I don't know why I relished those days, but it was a nice throwback to the days of like, like you said, the ritual of setting the, the superset of what music you were going to listen to that day. Um, and so like the whole experience of owning that iPod, uh, the first gen shuffle really stuck with me. And I remember also, I used to read iLounge uh, back when they were only about iPods and not like the entire iOS world. And I remember them saying that like when they would plug the first gen shuffle into like their very sensitive and fancy uh, audio monitors, that it actually put out better sound than the, It was probably at the same time as the mini and the like the full iPod, basically classic at the time. And it it had like the best uh, sound decoder. And so I felt pretty good, even though I was still pumping it through like the same terrible earbuds. uh, It felt cool that like I had the lowest level music player that was reminding me of like the terrible music player I used to own, but it it was capable of putting out higher fidelity (laughs) audio. It was actually so much better. Yeah. Yeah. So that was my favorite iPod.
0: My favorite iPod, I think, was the second generation Nano, which was the one that was just like, it, it had the same sort of aspect ratio screen as the original iPod, not one of the, not like the fatty Nano or any of the ones with the weird tall screens. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just a, an iPod taken down as small as they could make it at the time. And it's kind of ironic that it was my favorite one because I think that I got it for free as one of the like educational promotions So, it was at some point, I think it was when I bought my, hmm, was was that probably my white MacBook to go off to grad school? And that came as, it was a four gig, which was a little bit limiting. I couldn't fit my entire music collection on there. So, that was my first experience with sort of like manually managing and doing autofill and that sort of thing. Um, But it was just, the form factor of it was so nice that it was the full iPod, experience with the click wheel and everything, but in the smallest package possible. I mean, you know, much smaller than even an iPhone today. Mm-hmm. And I thought that it was like perfect for road trips because it still had that physical feedback where you could very quickly find forward and backward if you had it on uh, on shuffle, where you didn't have to be fumbling for controls. When I got my first iPhone and tried to use it in the car, it was just a disaster. I th- like, thought I was going to crash constantly because there was no way that I could actually find the, the songs that I wanted. Like, on the Nano or on the classic iPod, you would scroll through, and it had that sort of acceleration feature like scrolling in I- iOS does today, where if you keep going, it really goes fast through the list, and you would get like to the letter that you wanted. And then you would know, oh, like, I have to go down three clicks, and you could put your eyes back on the road and do a motion that you thought was three clicks, then glance at it, go, oh, I needed to go one more. Got it, and hit play, and you were on your way instead of really sort of having to figure out where your thumb needed to go for touch controls. And I really liked that. Of course, the problem was you still had to get the audio to the car stereo, (laughs) Which, this is another whole set of hardware that h- hardware problems that we had at this time. So the car that I was driving at the time didn't have any fancy ways of getting the audio in. So I used my trusty tape adapter, <laughs> which is just an audio cassette tape with a wire sticking out of it that goes to a stereo mini plug. And worked surprisingly well. But there were also things at this time like the FM transmitters that you would plug into the bottom... The iTrip? iTrip, yeah. And it would try to find a FM station that wasn't overloaded in the place where you were. Invariably, if you were on a road trip, you would drive out of the region where that was not an active station. You would drive into 85.5 would be the local whatever station. It would start taking over your iPod. And then again, you have that problem of like manipulating things and trying to not crash and not being a distracted driver, but still just listening to your music. The car that I had was never fancy enough to even have just an aux in jack where you could have a uh, just mini plug to mini right. plug. Well, and certainly not for USB. You know, Today, I have a car that has Bluetooth, which has, it's a Ford, so it has the Microsoft Sync system, mm. which has all of its own host of problems. <laughs> um, but uh, tape adapter and a second gen Nano, that got me, to and from college many times, to and from grad school uh, safely across the country. So before we go, we want to just quick wrap up what our current music listening technology is. So we covered in this episode from the beginnings of listening to music on the Mac up through the beginning of the iPod and iTunes era. And as the guys on Connected said when they recorded that episode, it's pretty safe to say that the iPod era is basically over. The iPod Touch, which is the most up-to-date iPod, hasn't been revised significantly in about three years. It's still running an A5 processor, where the current phones are running A8s. Um, and we're going to see A9s and A10s anytime. Um, so we're also looking at this in terms of the fact that some people are heralding the end of the iTunes era, saying that even though iTunes had a major revamp in iTunes 12 less than a year ago where it got an all-new interface, which confused many people, <laughs> the fact of the matter is that people are relying less and less on a music library app like iTunes for their listening. So we think that we, it would be good for us to just quickly evaluate where our listening habits are and the apps that we're using today just to provide some context and to see if we think that those breakdowns of the eras of the Mac music technology are lined up with our experience.
1: I'll start because I think mine's a little simpler uh, in that everything is in iTunes. I use iTunes when I'm on my Mac. uh, And like I said, it's, I let it do whatever it wants with my file system. Um, and I use music on my iPhone, the the built-in music app. Uh, I have dormant accounts with Pandora, RDO, and now Spotify. Um, And for the latter two, which I think is where a lot of people see uh, music libraries moving, is like your your entire library in the cloud. You maybe save locally your favorites. You stream everything else. I just can't get into it. I can't get into the the initial... uh, uh, like sync to your library or sync your favorites or whatever. That's that's daunting to me, even though I'm sure it probably is like a matter of set it and forget it.
0: I'm not a Spotify user. And the thing that turned me off was that I don't know if this is the case anymore. This is, I, I just haven't even tried it recently. But I remember at the beginning was that you could only use it by logging in with Facebook. And I was just trying to avoid that for any type of service. Like if the service doesn't directly tie into my Facebook data for a a distinguishable purpose or my Twitter data for a use, like for actually using my tweets. Like I'm not going to sign into that. I'm going to click through to do the sign in with a email address option, but there was none for Spotify. And that just turned me away.
1: Boy, I can tell you as someone who has worked at Facebook on specifically abuse of Facebook platform and API, I have the, I am with you a hundred percent. I don't trust anybody. Um, but yes, they do have a sign up with your email address now. That's how I did it cuz even still I'm not going to I'm not going to do it.
0: Well, I I might give it a shot now.
1: I'm just wrapping up uh as we record the most recent episode of ATP and they do a little discussion about um TV and the future of TV, which is kind of mirroring this like the the move from uh cable and things like having a TiVo loaded with episodes to everything being streaming. And something John Syracuse says is like Think of the first model of TV, like you turn the device on and something is playing. (laughs) And like, that's the goal, right? You don't have to, I mean, like maybe you'll choose your channel, but you don't have to wait for buffering or you don't have to go through like signups or DRM or anything. Like you turn it on and it's playing. And there's something about having all your files local. Like if your internet's out, you can still open iTunes and something will be playing.
0: I'll jump in here, actually, Brian, because I was going to say that, I have most of my stuff in the horrible beast that is iTunes 12, but I use iTunes Match, and I don't know if you do. No, I don't. So I've used iTunes Match for a couple years now, and I've found it really useful, especially on my work computer. So when I started at my company, they said that they would get me a Mac, which was great, but they said that they would get me the the bottom-of-the-line 13-inch MacBook Air, which only has 128 gigs of storage. So... I thought that iTunes match would be really useful here. And it has been, it has been because I don't have to dedicate a lot of the storage on my work computer, which is actually starting to run out for my music library, but I can just open up iTunes and play my music library while I'm at work. The thing is though, that when I first launch iTunes and because it's the bottom of the line Mac, it has four gigs of RAM. I try to keep iTunes closed when I'm not using it whenever I open it up, it actually has to connect to iTunes Match to realize that it has all of my music. And if you look in it, there are a few tracks that I've downloaded first to that computer, which are local, and everything else shows up with all of its metadata, all of the times played, star ratings, date added, all of that grayed out. And sometimes when iTunes Match is not having a great day, it'll sit there for a minute or two and I just can't play music or I can play the three albums that I have on that computer. And it's so frustrating because you can see all of that data that you've cultivated there that is your iTunes library. I mean, I did a project a couple years ago where I went through and actually literally star rated every single song in my iTunes library, which was insane. But it was also kind of fun because I just sorted them by uh, track name which is, like, a weird way to do it. Like, you have like you have some sense of how you're progressing because you're like, oh, I'm halfway through the H's now. But it also, like, mixes up the music so you aren't just listening to albums straight through. Um, but I have all that data there. And I see that you have in our notes that you have a lot of data in iTunes, too, and there's this, like, lock-in effect.
1: Yeah, uh, that I'll just quickly shout out. Uh, I set up iTunes... I think in 2003, the summer of 2003, as I was preparing to go to college and I've owned, I think three computers since then. And, uh, every time I've, uh, transferred data, I've kind of just copied the entire tilde slash music folder over,
0: which includes your iTunes library. Dot XML.
1: <laughs> yeah. Which is, I don't even want to touch it. Uh, but it has like all my play counts. um, basically since 2003. And so when I hit 10 years of straight iTunes usage, I tried to run some stats on it. And that was really fun to look at. And you're right, it's there's a lock-in effect. Now I kind of want to see if I can make it last another 10.
0: There's such awesome data there. And I know that mine only goes back to 2008 because that was the last time that I had a catastrophic hard drive failure before I had... Clone backups and like a good backup system in place. And I was able to salvage my music because, you know, you can re get music from pretty much anywhere. But I lost that iTunes library file and all that metadata. And I know that I was tracking before that. Uh, I was using iTunes and in college I used Audio Scrabbler which was a plugin for iTunes, or it was a little like menu bar app that ran in the background and was somehow able to hook into iTunes, and it would just keep track of what you played. And I think it was if you played like more than 50% or more than two minutes of the song, whichever was less, it would say you played that song and it would keep track and it would give you like weekly statistics. Eventually, they got bought by LastfM and it's called it, it's part of LastfM. Uh, actually, if you look at the Last FM logo, there's the AS in Last FM that's like a that's like a ligature that it is a, a callback to audio Scrabbler. Cool. And they called it scrobbling, this act of like tracking your music. And I know a couple people when when they did the last FM changeover, I didn't really like how they changed the site much and I stopped using it. But I know some people who have audio Scrobbler data or Last FM data now that goes back a similar length of time, they have the benefit that Last FM is also tying into some of the streaming services, and it still works with iTunes, and they have this data that's a little bit more portable for them. And, you know, if you're the right kind of nerd who loves data and loves music, that's something very valuable to you. And like I said, I'm sort of sad that my data is a little bit incomplete, but also the fact is that my data of that sort, lives in iTunes. The other place that I personally listen to music is I'm a Pandora 1 subscriber. I got into Pandora, I want to say in like maybe 2006 or 2007, and really enjoyed it. Did not want to hear the ads and bought the subscription. I'm still a little bit bitter that they moved to the monthly subscription and charge my card every month. I would much rather pay for a year up front and just be done with it. Uh, but I've found that the, the higher quality audio, they do 192 AAC if you have Pandora 1 as opposed to 128K, no ads. And I've again, I've got a lot of history in there. I've got these stations that I've built and tweaked with thumbs up and thumbs down over many years, and they're very reliable. And the, the thing that I like about it is that even when new music comes out, it sort of funnels into the appropriate pandora station and you can wind up discovering things that way and also the fact that it is it, it just feels comfortable some people think that it's a, a downside of pandora that the algorithm is a little bit too predictable that there's not a whole lot of opportunity for discovery but i kind of love the fact that like i went to get a haircut a couple months ago and I'm sitting there and the woman is like shampooing my hair and just making small talk and I hear the music that they're playing it's like the third song that they've played in the place and I'm like oh yeah I know this Eurodance Pandora station <laughs> I've got one of these <laughs> <laughs> this is terrible music that I love very good <laughs> and then like you're in a place like that and you recognize that you're in a corner of the Pandora algorithm and you start looking around like you're in a coffee shop, and then you look and you see the iPad in the back that's like plugged into the stereo. And again, that's like, it's a weird thing where the, the method of delivering the music is part of the aesthetic and is something that you can tap into. And it's like, it's almost cultural at that point where you can say to the barista in the coffee shop, you're like, hey, I like this Pandora station. I've listened to something similar for the past two years. So that's what keeps me with Pandora, even if it's not going to give me on-demand access to the latest music that I want, like as something like Beats or Spotify or RDO would.
1: Right. And, um, and I think, yeah, there's something that needs to be said of the value of the social component of all these services and how they aid in music discovery and, uh, you know, like kind of coaxing you to branch out from the same collection of files that will only change when you decide to add something to it.
0: Well, we should go into the, uh, long sorted history of iTunes and, and talk about ping,
1: (laughs) (laughs) not this episode, obviously we've run far too long. Um, but yeah, so I think that that's like, personally, it's probably an extension of my like fear of change and fear of moving from as, as I like the way you put it, being able to have my hands on the file system to the, the nebulous music is in the cloud. Uh, in the same way that I don't trust other people's like tastes and, and services, I want to listen to what I want to listen to.
0: One other thing with iTunes Match that drives me nuts is that for the most part, everything is great. And I even did in the early days that sort of trick where you would delete your local files and then upgrade them to higher bitrate. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. By re-downloading them from iTunes Match. But now I've found that there are some songs on iTunes Match where the iTunes Match version is just wrong in some way um as far as i can tell uh (laughs) you'll laugh at the song here but harvey danger flagpole sitta oh sure (laughs) yeah there's only a clean version on itunes and they match it to either the clean or the album version and you're singing along because you know you're listening to your nostalgic music from your childhood and then like they bleep a word Mm -hmm. and it just throws everything off um or recently I was listening through to an album, and there's one track that's just like, it cuts off with two seconds left in the track. And that's the that's the canonical iTunes Match version of that song. And the only way to not have the song just end prematurely is to have your local copy of it. So I'm considering actually canceling iTunes Match and going back to the old way. Um, I recently got a new phone. I've got 64 gigs of storage on my phone now so I can actually fit my entire music library on there before I was really having to manage. And so iTunes Match on the phone was also useful because I had songs on demand and not uh, filling up more than capacity of my iPhone and running into problems. Oh, you want to download an app? Well, you have too many songs. Okay, well, obliterate your entire music library and start over. Um, So... I'm considering going off of it and going back to the old school way. Like I said, we, you know, we always wind up identifying with our, our generation. (laughs) We are the file system generation. Yeah. Anyway, I think that wraps up the ways that we have (laughs) listened to music on our Macs in the past 20 years, with the exception of iTunes, which I think we'll definitely come back to soon. If you have stories that you want to share about applications that you used or things that we missed or stories about weird, quirky stuff with your embarrassing music that you love to listen to, you can always get in touch with us on our website. You can go to the contact form there at simplebeep.com. Of course, you can also find show notes for this show and all of our episodes at simplebeep.com slash episodes. If you want to get in touch with us quickly on Twitter, we are at simple underscore beep. And individually, I'm E. Cormony, E-C-O-R-M-A-N-Y. And I'm Bsuto, B-S-U-T-O. Thanks for listening.